Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Jesus, we thank you for your presence here, and we're grateful for your faithfulness uh, that every time we show up, you show up. In, in greater measure. And so, God, I ask this morning that as we look to enhance our faith, God, that you would move in us and through us, that you would speak louder than any other voice this morning, and that you would move us towards the women and men that you've called us to be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're on the last two weeks of this series that we've been uh, engaged in, going through a book that I published last February, and then COVID hit, and then we didn't do anything with it. So we decided to jump into this conversation, and it has been really rich. And I don't say that as the author. I just say that as the, as the conversations that we've been having, not only here on Sunday mornings, but in our humanity groups throughout the week, uh, just hearing some of the life transformation that's taking place of people that have really engaged this process. It's really been inspiring for me to watch watch and to listen to over the last few weeks. And this, I, this concept comes out of this book uh, called Second Peter in the scriptures. And this is what it says about how our faith operates. And it says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us every great and precious promise so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, and make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So, so really we've been taking a look at what it looks like to move from a life that is defined by corruption and moving us into what the scriptures call our divine nature. And how we move away from a life that is informed by destruction and moving into our God-given potential that God has called us to step into. And it begins this process by stepping into a life of faith. And we've talked about how every single person is a person of faith. I know in the Christian tradition, we oftentimes refer to people who believe in Jesus as people of faith. But it's been my uh, point over the last few weeks to redefine what it means to be a person of faith. Because whether you believe in Jesus or not, you, have, you are a person of faith. You put your faith in something every single day. You put your faith in your car when you got here today. You put your faith in this chair. You still are putting your faith in your chair as you're sitting there. You will put your faith in whoever makes your lunch after this. You're putting your faith by stepping into a 133-year-old building and believing it's not going to fall down on you. You have a lot of faith. You are a person of faith, right? It's interesting because I was reading this quote by Anne Lamont earlier this week, but the friend sent me in. She was talking about how the opposite of faith is not doubt. Doubt's a natural part of 
the human existence. The opposite of faith is certainty. When we find ourselves in a sense of certainty about life, then we no longer need or have faith. But if you're going to live a life that's filled with mystery and awe and wonder and beauty and all of the things that I believe God encompasses, then faith is the pathway to have that happen. Isn't it interesting that the human spirit both longs for a miracle and it longs for predictability? Like every single one of us, we long for the unexpected and and the miraculous to take place. And we also long for our lives to kind of stay safe and comfortable at the same time. So really the question isn't whether or not you're going to be a person of faith. The question is, is your faith moving you towards the life that that you know you were designed to live? Is your faith moving you towards that? And what I love about what Peter, when he writes this passage, he talks about faith not being enough alone. It's not not enough to simply have faith. We're called to enhance our faith as we go along the journey. And there is actually a clear path on how we are to enhance our faith. Now, let me just tell you, this is probably the clearest thing to a formula that you will ever get from me. I, people are so, I know people are so frustrated with me at times because they walk away from our conversation saying, I'm so inspired and I have no idea what to do. And th- just, just revel in this moment as you're getting a clear path of actually how to live this out. And he gives us this path. That starts with goodness, then goes to knowledge, then goes to self-control, then goes to perseverance, then goes to godliness, then goes to mutual affection, and then goes to love. And Peter gives us this list, and they build on each other, so you, can ha- you can't have one without the previous element, that there's a, there's a structure to this. And it starts by enhancing our faith with a perspective shift towards goodness, That's where this whole thing starts, that we must add goodness to our faith, meaning we must engage faith from the perspective that God is good. Why? Because we're only really going to put our faith in something that we perceive to be trustworthy, to be good. You're not going to put your faith in something that you perceive to be rickety or lacking trust or is not going to actually return an investment in that. And that actually shifts how I engage my faith because I am more apt to move forward faster when I believe something to be inherently good than I do when I believe something to be inherently bad or distrusting. And this is what starts the momentum going. See, I, I, imagine, I just wonder, what would happen, even if those of you who walked into this space, you're like, hey, I'm not sure, sure I believe in God, what happened if you actually stepped into a space where you believe that God had your best interest in mind? That God had actually set out the table for you to win? That might transform how you would engage with him. See, it doesn't mean that all things are good. I think sometimes Christians have this really uh, bad situation where we, we find ourselves sticking our head in the sand or putting on rose-colored glasses and saying, everything is good. That's not the case. But what we are promised is that in the end, it will be made good. That God is working things together like an artist to create something bigger than us. And that something could be moved towards goodness. That the stress load that you're living in might become less as you perceive that God is working things together for good. But then he says, once we've added this perspective of goodness to our faith, we are added to that goodness knowledge. So that when our feelings kick in and they inform us that something is not good, we can then fall back on what we know to be true. So this actually requires us to know what is true. It requires us to engage the the promises of God and the things that he has said and how he's actually set up the world around us, how he's established this game called life. And if knowledge is power, then there is responsibility to that power that is given to us to control our impulses based on the knowledge that we have 
as we have added to our goodness. So we add self-control to our knowledge. And self-control really is the jetpack that, that gets things rolling, that gets things moving forward. See, because up until now, this is all theory, and self-control moves this from theory into reality. I was at the gym on Friday, for the first time in a very long time, and... <laughs> I was at the gym on Friday, and it was interesting because there was this young kid that was sitting next to me with his dad, and his dad was trying to teach him the ropes of how to weightlift. And the whole time, the young kid, every time the dad said something, the kid would say, yeah, 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 I know. And then he would proceed to do something exact opposite than what his dad said. And then his dad would try to correct him, and he would say, yeah, 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 I know. And I, I just thought the whole time, no, you actually don't know. <laughs> I know you think you know. Have you ever done that before when someone tries to correct you or someone tries to inform you and your response is, yeah, 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 I know? See, you actually just have a nice idea up until that point. See, because to know actually means I'm going to put this into action. Self-control transforms knowledge into reality. It harnesses all of your power towards the vision that God has called you into. It says, let's move this. Now, then everyone can have self-control for a moment. It's really not hard to control yourself for a day, uh, a few days, a week. Some of you can even go a month. It's really difficult to be controlled over a long period of time, let alone a lifetime. So perseverance must kick in. Perseverance must be added to our self-control. See, self-control is doing the same thing over and over again, being faithful in it. But perseverance is doing the same thing over and over again, even when it's difficult, even when it gets hard, even when you don't feel like doing it in that. It allows you to weather the storm and come out on the other side. So as you're persevering in life, then the scriptures say that we are, add to, we are to add godliness to our perseverance. Now, here's the thing. Godliness takes all of your perseverance and it gives it wings. It elevates your life in the middle of this. Your willingness to add godliness to your perseverance will determine if the storm elevates you or destroys you. It will determine the destination that you are moving to and heading towards. Will you become godlike or godly in the storm? Or will you become crushed in the weight of the perseverance? And godliness is both formed and informed in your perseverance in life. How you persevere will determine the godliness that you step into. So godliness is informed by how we persevere, and you can't persevere until you've decided to control yourself, and you don't know what to control until you've added knowledge, and knowledge really doesn't matter until you've determined that God is good, and God only makes sense if he's good if you're willing to put your faith in him. So there's a formula that Peter is setting us up to win. Now here's the thing. Up until now, all of these supplements have been all about you, and it's been wonderful, hasn't it? They've been all about you, and it's all about, about increasing your capacity to live the life that you were designed for. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness. All of these are about increasing the potency of your faith, moving you into this divine nature that Peter talks about. Now, here's what I found in life as a coach, as a pastor, as someone who has worked with human beings for a long period of time, is at the end of the day, everything comes back to relationship. That we live in a relational world where things are interconnected with one another constantly. So we see this as at a cosmic level, where, where, where the planets are actually in relationship to one another, spinning at 
speed's unheard of, and that gravity is actually informed by how they stay in place. That we know when tides are going to rise and fall based on the relationship between the moon and the earth. We know exactly when the sun will rise and the sun will set. We know when seasons will start, and we know when seasons will end, because there's this cosmic relationship that's taking place at a large level. But then even at a smaller micro level, there, there are circles of life, as the Lion King informs us, that are in play, that are very, very delicate. This summer, we decided that we were going to buy a milkweed plant because we wanted to see if we could attract monarch butterflies. And so we got this milkweed plant, and of course, on it came caterpillar eggs, and within a few weeks, we had caterpillars all over the milkweed plant, and our kids were super excited about it, and so we started taking care of these caterpillars. And... Right before we were to leave to Cancun a few weeks ago, I look out at the milkweed plant and these caterpillars had grown pretty big and I realized that they had eaten all of the leaves. That they, that they had completely decimated all of the leaves. And I'm thinking, oh no, this cycle is about to break down. This cycle is about to fall apart. And so here it is hours before I'm about to board a plane to go on vacation and I'm heading to Home Depot to buy more milkweed plants for the caterpillars and I'm out there with my two-year-old transplanting caterpillars onto the milkweed because I understood that if we were to leave for a week, these caterpillars would not complete their journey and our kids would be absolutely decimated because there is a delicate balance in relationship with one another in the middle of that. So it shouldn't surprise you that eventually everything has to move outwards. Everything has to move into a space where it connects to others, to other people. See, anything worth having faith in is always connected to another human being. When you have faith in healing for yourself or for someone else, it's usually not just for you or that person, but it's for the relational network that will be impacted if that healing doesn't take place. When you're believing for a circumstance to be transformed, it's not just for you and your well-being. It's for your mental health and your spiritual health and how that's going to impact other people around you. When you're having faith in a financial situation, it's not just for you. It's about how this impacts your family, your, your network of people around you. And let me just tell you, if whatever you're putting your faith in doesn't involve other people, it's too small. It's actually not a God-sized vision for the future in that. So if you haven't noticed this trend with God, it's all about us becoming whole, us becoming powerful, us coming back to life, and then giving all of that wholeness, that power, that potency away to others, and recognizing how this impacts the world around me, using it for the sake of my brother and sister. So it makes sense that our next step in this equation is adding mutual affection to our godliness where our godlikeness now orients outward to other people and recognizes, oh, that there are other people in the world besides me. <laughs> there, there are all kinds of cultural sayings that we have that don't necessarily hold up very well, that I actually hate when people say them or post them in nice memes on Instagram. Like, I hate when people say, forgive and forget, as if that's like a godly value. We're called to forgive, but nowhere in the scriptures does it say we are to forget. God forgets, right? But there are still consequences for that. But there are actually places where it's healthy to remember that someone has hurt you or that there's things that need to be repaired. I mean, could you imagine just going through life saying, hey, everything that someone does wrong to me, I'm just going to forget about it? First of all, you can't. Yeah. And second of all, there are things that are worth saying, hey, I need to put a boundary here. I need to put a space here. There, there, I hate the phrase that says, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. 
Could you imagine if we just went around life just saying nice things? I know some of you do do that, and that's why your relationships are falling apart. But, <laughs> but, but there, this, would, this actually creates a lot of trouble if all you ever hear are nice things and all you ever give away are nice things because we actually need difficult feedback to move us towards the life that we are needing to live. But the one phrase that's used so often that I just don't understand is when someone's talking about someone and they say, I, I love them, but I don't like them. I don't understand that phrase whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense to me in the scope of, of life. How does that even work? I mean, I feel like love is such a higher commitment than liking someone. And at the end of the day, love looks a lot like sacrifice. So when you say, I love them, but I don't like them, it's like saying, you know, I wouldn't really hang out with them, but I'd probably marry them, right? <laughs> It's like, it's, like, it's like saying to them, you know, like, I wouldn't go on a second date, but I would take a bullet for them, right? <laughs> it, it just doesn't make sense in the grand scheme of things. You would think that liking someone would be included in the sacrifice needed. At minimum, sacrificing your need to inform people that you don't like them, right? <laughs> but the breakdown for most of us in this quest eventually towards love next week is that we as a species love poorly. That's just, that's just a matter of fact. And if that's a shock to you, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we, we, we struggle with this thing called love. And we create all kinds of workarounds in our pursuit of love, like cute little phrases like this, like I like you, but I don't love you. See, when we say that, what we really mean is I'm struggling to love you fully for who you are. I'm struggling to actually sacrifice whatever needs to be right about who you are over there so I can actually get to love. See, because love at a very base level begins with our willingness to step into mutual affection. And this is actually where this whole journey gets really authentic and where most people choose to back off. Because up until now, this feels like a self-help journey. And now this becomes a rescue mission for the world. And this is where people choose to bow out because it gets difficult in the pursuit of others. So what the heck is mutual affection? It's not like a term that we often use today. Like, hi, honey, I have mutual affection for you. Uh, going to the dictionary, mutual means of a feeling or action experienced or done by two parties toward the other. And affection being a feeling or liking and caring of someone or something, tender attachment. So let's just say that mutual affection, as we're going to use it this morning, is caring for and being attached to one another. This is what we are called to orient our, good, our godliness, our godlikeness towards. At the end of the day, we would care for one another and be attached to one another. And we have to engage this first before we ever attempt getting to this space called love. Now, this movement known as the church is such a fascinating social experiment to me. I mean, when you think about how God planned on redeeming the world, you would think the last context that he would have chosen would be this. Because here's the thing. In this, we have people from every sector of humanity in this room and watching online. And I can tell you that if you don't know that already. We, we have people from every socioeconomic background that are here, serving, connected, sitting next to one another. In fact, sometimes I just, because I know things about you, some of you, <laughs> most of you I don't, some of you I do. What, I love looking out at a crowd and I know that there's a homeless person sitting next to a millionaire. You don't know that, but I know that. 
I, I love looking out at a crowd and saying, that person just lost their job and that person's the CEO of a company and they're gonna be connected with one another today. So we have people of all different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have, we have different genders. We certainly have different political values based on the last year. <laughs> all in the same room. We have people of different sexual orientations. We have people of different beliefs, of different religions, all connected into this space, moving towards a common unity, towards a common goal, all in the same place. Now here's the interesting thing. Under most circumstances, we would have no business being in the same room with one another. There would be no reason for us to gather together and stay here. But here's what God does, is he puts everyone in a room, and he says this, let's have them connect to me, and in the process, be knit together and see how that goes, right? In fact, he says, let's ask them to have mutual affection for one another. And let me just tell you, as someone who leads spiritual communities, oftentimes it feels like putting a bunch of cats and heat in a room together and say, get along, right? <laughs> this year has proven that. <laughs> and that's oftentimes what it feels like. But this is what the scriptures say about us coming together and how Paul defines this in this book called Ephesians. He says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be, patient, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the spiritual reality is that the moment that you connect to Jesus, the moment that you decide that you're going to follow him, you and I are moved from a bunch of individuals into a one. That, that there is no longer God viewing a bunch of individual people, but he views them as one. And not only are we knit as one, but we are to keep this unity in the spirit. That we would be bonded by peace, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. No biggie. Right? In fact, when you find that community, let me know, because I would love to connect to it. But this is how it describes this. Now, if you are going to live this out, this clearly violates our rights to our own individual identity. And even as I was writing this originally for this book, I wanted to make all kinds of caveats because if you've been around humanity for long enough, you know that creativity is one of our highest values and we talk a lot about your uniqueness and your individual calling and your individual gifts and how you as a human being were designed unique to express a very specific thin slice of the DNA of God to the world around you. And so I wanted to make all kinds of caveats, but I thought, let's just let this sink in for a while, that we are called to be one. See, even, even our culture as a nation is built on this idea of rugged individualism. <laughs> that the individual matters more. And here's the thing. Even in our current tribalism where everyone has to have an identity, even in the cramming people into groups, people then have to have their individualism in the group. I'm not just this race, I'm this race and this. I'm not just this orientation, I'm in this orientation and this. I don't just follow this, I'm this and this. Because even when the culture around us is saying cram into a tribe, there's something inside of us that's like, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> See me for who I am. I am chronically unique, right? <laughs> so it makes sense, it makes sense to me 
why people would choose to view their spirituality as a private matter, as something that is just between them and God. Now, at best, people may simply feel like they can pick and choose who they engage their spirituality with based on who is like them or who connects to them or who they might represent better or more effectively. But at worst, we believe that we could actually have a spiritual journey alone and that we wouldn't have to connect to one another. And let, let me just be honest, it's, it's much less complicated that way. It, it, it is much more comfortable. I wouldn't necessarily call it easier. But it is, let's just say it takes the drama out of the equation. <laughs> so I get, the, I get the pull. I get the desire. I get the, the intrigue to step into that. But you know what's also interesting? It's interesting how, how every human being that I've ever talked with at the end of the day dreams of some type of a utopian society. We, we dream of, of a community of people where everyone is generous, where everyone is filled with respect, where everyone loves like, I don't know, something where everyone is humble, gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love. <laughs> and it's almost as if our souls at their core were made for this type of engagement with one another. Because we all dream of it. We all long for it. And, and our culture differs on, on the how to get there, certainly. I mean, I think most of the conversation is not about the what, it's on the how. Whether it's a capitalism or socialism or communism or religiousism or whatever it may be. And that's really not the important part to notice right now. The important and the powerful thing is that the human spirit longs for this type of intimacy. It longs for this type of connection. It longs for this type of community where care and attachment to one another are such a high value. Now, in order to be one, mutual affection has to be the starting foundation. It's the building blocks that we start with to build this oneness with one another. An internal sense of care and attachment with one another. Now, attempting this type of unity creates the most beautiful context for God to show up. It, makes, it creates the most beautiful space for God to show up and engage in because it's the very thing that our souls are longing for. And this is such a high value here at Humanity Church where care and connection would be sacred values amongst a people that have really no business having care and attachment with one another. Where care and concern would be a higher value over needing to be right or needing to be in control or needing to look good or needing to feel good in some way, shape, or form. What might happen if that is what we stepped into? And see, we're actually crazy enough to believe that when people step into healthy environments, they actually become healthy spiritually. That when people step into healthy communities where mutual affection happens, that people become whole in the middle of this. But here's, here's the other side of mutual affection, is that it is the greatest context to create the thing that our souls long for the most, but it is also the greatest context for suffering. It's the greatest context for betrayal and letdown and hurt. Because if you lay down your own need for your individual identity and decide that you are going to be intimately connected and caring for another, you will be hurt. No, you're not just hurt, you'll be wounded. You will find yourself in a guaranteed place of suffering because, newsflash, you will also cause others to suffer based on your own living. See, this whole utopian society only works if everyone all the time is caring for and connecting with one another. 
And we've yet to find that. So we're often let down in this pursuit of mutual affection. See, ironically, where we often get stuck is where we expect others to be for us what we know we are unable to be for others, a perfect, unending source of care and connection. Have you ever been, like, offended when people let you down? You know, like, you're just like, man, they they let me down. I'm offended by that, right? But it's interesting. Have you ever been shocked when someone informs you that you let them down? Like, I did what? Not me. Not me over here, Mr. Care and Connection, right? (laughs) Mrs. Perfect Care and Connection over there. See, because when we are connected like this, that is the guarantee. So it sounds like this is a losing proposition that we are invited into. We either lower our standards for life and relationships, or we completely give up on this idea of mutual affection, Because actually living this out requires a radical level of grace and forgiveness. It requires a radical level of grace and forgiveness to step into this type of culture. In fact, the only possibility for a community that cares and connects at this type of level is an abundance of grace and forgiveness all the time, which seems to be in short supply today. In fact, we live in a world where offense is actually at a high demand. Offense is in an abundance, and our fuses seem to be shorter than ever, and our rights to rule over our conversations seem to rule over everything else. We find ourselves alone, disconnected, the most anxious generation, the most depressed generation, the most addicted generation, and our capacities for holding space, for grace, and forgiveness seem to be paper thin. It's interesting that we have short fuses when it comes to others, that we've lost the ability for long-suffering when it comes to others in relationship to us. But when we want others to be with us, we want them to suffer long in the process with us. And I don't know about you, but have you felt the cynicism kick in over the last 18 months when it comes to the possibility of living like this? I know I have. I felt my own cynic, that premature disappointment in what's to come. Even, even when people attempt to start creating that type of unity, all kinds of posts are out there saying, we don't want that type of unity. <laughs> As if there was a caveat to the type of unity that we we're supposed to have with one another. So how on earth are we supposed to engage this enhancement when we have such a short supply and we've tried time and time again and it feels like it doesn't work? Well, it's a good thing that we just added godliness to our perseverance. Because what this requires is actually a level of godliness within us, godlikeness within us to step into and create this type of community. See, because it would require us being godlike to live at this level of grace and forgiveness with one another. As if we've persevered and we've added godliness to our faith, and now we have the same capacity that God has for others as we step into relationship with them. That's the only possibility for mutual affection. So what, is this, what does this even look like? Because we're so unfamiliar with it. We're so unpracticed with it. See, Paul then goes on to say in Ephesians, he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully for your, to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander. Along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Now, these are powerful words. If we just took this and made this our blueprint, we would get really far. But I actually think the most powerful words in this whole passage is when Paul says, as in Christ, God forgave you. See, God never asks us to step into a space that he hasn't already gone first, that he hasn't already stepped into himself, that he hasn't already given us everything we need to create this type of community and care and connection with one another. And see, this is why it's important to not skip these steps. There is a process that God is building within us to get us to the space of godliness or godlikeness so that we then have the character to step into mutual affection. It's like building something from Ikea, right? You skip a step and you are screwed, right? I can't tell you how many bookshelves are in my house with a white shelf on a black bookshelf in my house because I skipped a step somewhere, right? They, They build upon one another. See, it's impossible to have mutual affection for one another and to create that type of community until you have persevered through Christ and created godliness in your life because once you have gone through something and have had God pull you through, you have so much more empathy, compassion, grace, and forgiveness available for others. See, because you know what it is like to struggle and fail and have God alone to rely on to pick you back up. You know what it's like to to long and to lose and to watch God give you back everything that was taken. You know what it's like to strive and to suffer and have a wound so big that only the divine could step in and heal it. You know things that you didn't know before. And things have transformed in you because of how you persevered with God in the middle of it that moved you there. So when you look at others in need, when you look at others in the struggle, when you look at others in their moment going through the storm, you have so much grace and forgiveness available. You can now say, hey, I know what it's like to be there. I know what it's like to be angry. I know what it's like to feel like you can't forgive. I know what it's like to be so offended that you want to back away. Knowing that they are on their journey, that God is moving them and in them and through them as well. See, if you have trouble with mutual affection, it could be that you've persevered, but you have not persevered with godliness yet. And so maybe you need to go back to the storm and ask God to shape you in the middle of it. You skipped a step. See, there's a temptation when you skip the step, when you're unwilling to persevere, to look at others who are in the storm with contempt, as if, who are you, and why are you telling me in the middle of that? One one thing I get asked a lot over the last couple months as we've kind of regathered and we've discuss the pandemic. Isn't it always funny when you get together for the first time, the small talks always like, man, it's been a crazy year, right? Uh, the, the one question that I've been asked the most by people that I haven't seen in a long time is, man, how did you get through this season as a pastor? Like, how did you get through 
Not just a pandemic, but then all kinds of political conversations and all kinds of racial and and justice conversations, then all kinds of conversations around masks and vaccines and what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing, and people feel like they're at odds with one another. You know, the interesting thing is that I've, as I've worked with people over the years, and I've heard stories and I've engaged with people, I've heard so much that nothing shocks me anymore. It's always interesting when someone comes to me and they say, oh man, Nathan, I just need to talk to you about something and I, I, I just, it's so big and, and I feel like it's going to overwhelm you and they share it with me and I almost have to like hold back the look of like, oh, really? You know, <laughs> because I've, there's not much that I haven't heard. There's not much I haven't seen. There's not much that we haven't worked through in this community with people. Big things, small things, outlandish things, things that would make you blush, See, I I know what it's like for people to walk through hell and back. And I know that the person that looks like they have it all together may not actually have it all together. But it's also made me keenly aware of my own shortcomings, where I blow it, where I miss it, the areas that I absolutely need community in my life. It's one of the reasons why I am in a humanity group, where people lead me, because I need that space. So there is an immense amount of empathy and grace when people are in their own struggle towards mutual affection, when people are in their own space of healing and redemption to hang in the tension until mutual affection is birthed out of whatever conflict is needed, inviting Jesus into that space to redeem all things. See, and here's the thing you also have to know is that as you persist in it, As you just say, all right, God, I have persevered. I have allowed that perseverance to shape who I have become, that I have become God-like. I have become godly in this space. I now want to use this to create spaces where people are mutually connected to one another. You have to know and to believe that God will also redeem you in the middle of creating this type of space. That as you choose to enter into relationship, essentially choosing to enter into the betrayal, into the suffering, into the hurt, into the pain that comes with relationships, this actually makes you unstoppable because you are now creating that space not from your own goodwill, not because you have become a nice person, not because you're really kind, or not because you have a vision of a utopian society, but because you have been shaped into the woman or man that God has called you to be so that you now have the character available to create that type of space with one another to hang in there. See, this is not I choose to be a nice person. This is I have been shaped by God himself. I have been to hell and back, and I am willing to hang in with your journey until you get out of hell yourself. And that's what creates this type of mutual affection with one another. I will care and I will attach myself to you until you get through on the other side. And this is what creates power in this journey. Romans 12, 9 tells us this. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. But then it says, Be devoted to one another in love. That devoted to one another is also the same language that Peter translates as be mutually affected with one another. Honor one another above yourselves. See, it's interesting that in the scriptures, honor is always connected to mutual affection. 
Because when I shift my perspective now to recognize that everyone is in it in some way in this journey and that God is meeting them where they're at, not only is there grace and empathy and forgiveness available, but I also recognize that that person over there also carries a thin slice of the DNA of God. The scriptures use the language, they are image bearers. And so when I recognize that that, over, that person over there was designed to express this specific image of God, when I look at them, I have honor. I have respect. I have devotion to them to see them get to the space where not only they become healthy, but then they get to that space where they can express that thin slice of the DNA of God to the world around them, where God suddenly brings to life that part of them that is dead. And through Jesus, they reflect him back to the world. See, what if we looked at all the difficult people in our lives that make it so hard to have mutual affection, not as problems, but as opportunities to help them reach the destination where their lives reflect the very God who is wanting to be reflected in them. And wait for that to be unleashed within them. But someone has to go first. That's the thing. This whole thing is a little bit like a junior high dance. It's a little bit like, who's going to ask first? Who's going to go first? Who's, who's going to be willing to go first? And let me just tell you, all the people in the scriptures that are known as heroes of the faith, I'm convinced that most of them weren't like extraordinary people. I'm convinced that so many of them just decided to go first. That they were like, hey, I'm the one that will go first. And God said, great, we'll go with you. And so if you're waiting around for someone to create this utopian society for you, today God is saying go. That if you have persevered and you have allowed life to shape you, to become godly, to become godlike, to become the man or woman that he has called you to be, then you go first with the grace and forgiveness and everything that you need to step into that space. And here's the beautiful thing is when you go first, it invites others into it with you. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed someone that goes first? Isn't it inspiring? You're like, man, that took some cojones over there. Let me, let me jump in, right? Man, let, let me, let, I guess, man, that's exciting. They went first. I'll go second. And, and let me just tell you, you may be the first, but then all of a sudden there'll be a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And before you know it, you'll have a community around you who are all deciding to give their lives away. So when your godliness produced in perseverance is given away first, eventually you'll have others going with you. And eventually you'll have a community and a space where all are giving, where all are stepping into that space together, where all are moving forward. And that is what the world right now is longing for. It is longing for people who are going to go first to create this type of context, to unleash them into the faith that they were designed for. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this, this drive within us to create spaces where we are humble and patient, where we have mutual respect and honor and care for one another. God, I thank you that, that you did not just put a desire in us and leave us there, but that you gave us everything we need through Jesus to step into that space. And God, we, 
we live in a culture right now that has an abundant supply of offense and such a low supply of empathy and grace and forgiveness and mutual affection. So God, I ask that you would call us into that space. That as we've persevered and as that godliness, that God-likeness has risen up within us, that we would respond to the call then outward to create communities of mutual affection. That we would be made one through you. And this type of living can only be done with Jesus. This is, again, this is not, hey, I want to be a nice person. This is, I have been shaped by the power of God himself, and I have become the woman or man needed to shape and create this type of community. So you cannot do this without him. And this morning, if you're here and this is like inspiring and you're like, man, I, I, I'm in. I want to create this type of, I want to be that person. I want to have that type of empathy and grace and forgiveness. And you don't yet know Jesus. It's going to be a futile effort. But the great thing is, is that he wants to know you today. And so this morning, if you have not yet connected to Jesus, or maybe you've been away for a long time and you just stepped in this space with someone, maybe you're watching online and you found us on Facebook or YouTube or you've been connected for a while, this is your moment to connect to him. And it's just stepping into relationship with him like we've been talking about all morning and releasing your identity over to him, releasing your control over to him and saying, hey, I need this to become the person that will can create this type of community, that can step into this type of community, that can go first and so if that's you this morning, would you just look up at me and say, hey, I, I want to connect to Jesus maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. Yeah, lots of people in the room. If you're online, I just want you to click that button that says, I'm choosing to follow Jesus. Or if you're in the comment section, you can put, just put Jesus. We know what you mean. And I want you to pray this prayer with me. Maybe you've never prayed before. These are not magic words. This is not like an incantation. This is just you talking to God like you would anyone else. So I want you just to pray this with me. I pray, dear Jesus... I give you my life. I know that I'm broken. And I know that you died so that I could come back to life. So I give you everything. I make you Lord. And I choose to follow you today. And in that following, I will give my life away to others. I will serve the world around me with everything that you have given me. I thank you. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.